I know where we are today. I know where we can be. Um, I think I have a sense for what that path looks like. How do you put the pieces along the path so that we can then walk on it? And that's been a model, I think, that for many um, leaders in healthcare that you've utilized. And I did that at the division. Um, and you know that was what inspired me to continue the work as CMO and then interim CEO as well. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is David Cohn. Dave is a gynecologic cancer surgeon, and he has a lot of titles, so here we go. Interim Chief Executive Officer of the James, Chief Medical Officer of the James. He's also the Editor-in-Chief of the Gynecologic Oncology Journal and a funded NIH NCI Surgeon Scientist. I've probably left out a title or two, so I apologize, Dave. Uh, Dave has been on the podcast several times before to talk about a statewide screening program funded by Pelotonia, advances in treating gynecologic cancers, the importance of second opinions for cancer patients, and the impact of COVID-19 on cancer patients. But today's episode is about Dave, since he's been named interim CEO of the James, taking over for Bill Farr, who retired a few months ago. I thought I sh- I thought we should get to know a little bit about you, Dave. Um, your background, how and why you got into medicine and oncology, your family, uh, your musical talents. I've heard a little that you have some musical talent. <laughs> uh, your Pelotonia inspired new love of cycling, and your goals as interim CEO of the James. Where you plan to take the cancer program, and how, despite all your titles and the responsibilities that that come with them, how your focus always remains on your patients. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate being here. And um, uh, me as a topic is one of my least favorites to talk about. (laughs) So we'll see if we can struggle through this one together. I'm going to pull stuff out of you. (laughs) Don't you worry. (laughs) So let's get to know you a little bit. Uh, I don't even know where you're from. Where'd you grow up? What was your family like? What were you like as 10, 12, 14 years old. Oh, man. So I, I grew up in Washington, D.C. area. was born in northwest D.C., um, graduated high school in Potomac, Maryland, one of the D.C. suburbs about 45 minutes away. Originally, family was all from Chicago. My mom and dad both came from Chicago to D.C. when my father was going to law school, uh, night school at George Washington, working in Baltimore. And so they kind of uprooted their entire, you know, themselves from their family in Chicago and started their own family in the D.C. area. Um, my father was a intellectual property, a patent lawyer, and I think that, you know, that has a lot to do with how I decided to pursue a career in medicine, which I'm sure ultimately we'll get to. But, you know, I've got one brother uh, who's three years younger than I am, had a relatively typical upbringing for what at least I had expected. Um, you know, my parents were very supportive, kind of let us explore our own opportunities. And um, my brother and I took very different paths to get to where we ultimately landed. Uh, but I think that, you know, to this point in time, you know, I owe a lot to my family for providing me the support and structure to be able to kind of explore different avenues uh, to end up figuring out what I wanted to do. What were some of these different avenues you explored? Well, you know, I started off with my true love uh, in high school of uh, a lawn mowing business. Um, Mowed the neighbor's (laughs) lawns, eventually got money enough to buy a a riding mower. Um, And it was for those days that I used to put my big Walkman earphones on, top volume, and then uh, mowed the neighbor's lawns for for money. Um, You know, I had a a variety of odd jobs. I worked in a ski shop, which was really my passion during high school. A ski shop in Potomac, Maryland? You know, there's There's mountains about 45 minutes away yeah, okay. in the Poconos. And so that was my home ski area. And uh, Camelback and Jack Frost. You know, those are close I, by. I, I, I used to <laughs> ski at those mountains. Ski Liberty and Ski Roundtop were my, were my oh, okay. home mountains and uh, or hills or trash piles, or I'm not sure what they were. I remember that you could be at these ski mountains overlooking Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania, the nuclear uh, reactor yeah. site. And we used to really get a kick out of that. And then when the nuclear disaster occurred out there, it kind of changed the perception yeah. of, of where we were and what we were doing. You probably didn't want to see it anymore. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it was really my passion in high school was, uh, was skiing. I love to work with my hands to work on skis. And I think at some level that certainly kind of set me up for being a surgeon 
in, in, in life. Did you actually make your own skis? No, but I would work <laughs> on them um, on a regular basis. So ski rental shop, ski repair shop. And if you think about it, you know, when you're in high school um, doing the work in a ski uh, in a ski shop upstairs where you're away from everybody. I learned a lot about life from the ski mechanics that did this professionally. They were a very interesting breed of people. Uh, and again, it kind of rounds out your life experiences when you're recognizing what it is when people have chosen this career path. Um, and it kept me wanting more and more and more. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of that in, in my life too. The jobs I had in high school, I was working in restaurants. The people you meet there are good and bad influences and show you what you shouldn't shouldn't do absolutely in you as you <laughs> pursue your own career yeah. and you tend to remember the people who were not so good <laughs> more right but I, I would say that you know you recognize that there are certain things that drive people I, and every step of the way whatever job I've had you do pick up tidbits of information or yeah. life skills that will certainly shape you in the future. And I think that I've, I've talked to my children about this and any other, you know, individuals that I've been in contact with from a mentorship position is that if you're not able to recognize the opportunities in meeting other individuals along the way, both good and bad, like you point out, I think you're really missing out on, you know, the capacity for shaping your own decisions in life for the future. Now, I, there wasn't a ski team at your high school, was there? There was not a ski team. So, were, were you involved in in other teams? Um, well, it depends upon how you classify teams. So, I was not involved in sports outside of my love of skiing, um, but I was involved in um, in the glee club. Um, and so, in middle school, I um, was at my first musical. Um, and actually had the lead in a musical. And I remember that, which, uh, which musical it was the music man. And, um, you in, were Henry Hill. Yeah. So we won't ask you to sing. No, please don't do that because <laughs> the newspaper that highlighted the musical said, you know, Holly Shockey did an incredible job in her role, you know, doing the solos and so-and-so was remarkable. And David Cohn played this role. <laughs> That's it. <Yeah. laughs> that was a signal. I, I did go on after that point in time to continue to, to be uh, involved in music. And so there was a, and I'm embarrassed to say at some level, but it really was an important part of my life um, in the Winston Churchill High School Showstoppers, uh, where we wore matching sweaters and pants and shoes and men and women um, were performing uh, a variety of musical um, musical. We performed a variety of uh, of songs and dances, and uh, it was really that community. I think that was the most important thing about that. You danced. I did. What I kind, did. Not what kind well. of dancing? Oh man, you, you know, again, <laughs> I'm grounded in this chair, so you're not going to see any <laughs> dancing today. But um, if you if you watch High School Musical, uh, the television show, you'll see people in the Glee Club or dancing like that. Um, it was choreographed. It was relatively simple to the point where I could actually do it. But that was my introduction to, you know, organized teams at some level, uh, but not through the sport of, you know, typical high school basketball, football and so on. OK. Now, since we're on the topic of music, I know you play a variety of stringed instruments, but I'm not quite sure which ones and and how. How did you pick that up? Yeah. So um, I play. And playing is kind of, in quotes, more than anything, guitar, ukulele, and mandolin. And so I had a guitar in high school, and I picked it up occasionally, and um, that kind of died off over time. But when my daughter was in fourth grade, she came home with her violin. And I decided at that time that I was going to learn how to play the violin. And so I'd never played a bowed instrument before, but I went out and I rented myself a violin. And I said to my daughter, when you come home every day from your music you know, class, I want you to teach me what you learned. And she was a really, really hard instructor, uh, <laughs> criticizing my bow technique, how I held the violin. And one of my neighbors came over one day and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm playing violin with my daughter. And he said, well, that's really silly. Don't you have a guitar? Well, yes, I do. And he said, you know, the same tuning of violin is on the mandolin, G, D, A, and E. You should probably just, you know, you're familiar with frets, you're familiar with strings and strumming, just get yourself a mandolin and you can still play along with her. It's the same general tuning. Uh. And that's what I did. So <laughs> I went out. There's no way to rent a mandolin in Columbus, Ohio. So I bought a mandolin and loved the sound of it. And so that was my beginning to re-enter into the music. Um, started with a mandolin, 
had another mandolin at that point in time. My guitar broke, got another guitar, and then found a really old, lovely ukulele. And so I'd say I picked them up maybe a couple times a week. Um, I play my guitar and mandolin more than I do ukulele, but I try to learn a new song every week, and then I learn the same song the next week because I forgot it uh, yeah. when I don't practice enough. Is it at this point something you do after a tough day or just to... to freshen up your mind or meditate it's it's just a relax relaxation yeah for me it's clearly relaxation um i love the sound of music i love the challenge of thinking about well you were in the sound of music (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so in that circumstance i pick it up whenever i you know I don't know what leads me to, to do this, but I find myself just picking up the instrument after a day late in the evening uh, just as a form of relaxation. I actually used to have a mandolin in my office at the hospital, um, and then you know it just got kicked around a little bit too much with, um, you know, with all the activities that go on in the office, so I decided to bring it back home again, but I might bring it back again. Yeah, I, I, even for, for five or ten minutes, yeah. it is meditation. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Cause, so let's go back a little, back yeah. to high school. So after high school, at what point, or in high school, what, what point did you think, you know, medical school? So I would say that um, I didn't really think about medical school until sophomore year of college. Um, my father is an attorney. Um I think had an influence in me. I worked in his office and, you know, other law offices in the summer during high school, you know, when I wasn't mowing lawns or in the ski shop. And I think that I started my career in college thinking I was going to be a lawyer. Um, and so what happened was that as I continued to work in law firms um, through college, I realized that I wanted a little bit more people connection and um, started to get interested in the idea about medicine. So my father, as a patent attorney, worked on a lot of biomedical inventions. Uh, He was responsible for the work that was done with the original implantable defibrillator, which is the device that shocks the heart when someone goes into what's called sudden death. Uh, bring someone back, like an external defibrillator you see, you know, if someone has a heart attack. Correct. That can be implanted. And he did the original work on the implantable defibrillator. And I just remember him bringing home a VCR tape uh, of the original work that was done in animals that proved this device could work. And I was fascinated. And I remember thinking about that in college saying, well, medicine's really fascinating. Um, you can, you know, certainly help people. Uh, there's direct contact with individuals, and I think that that was probably more influential in my decision to pursue a medical career than anything. Wow. Now, where did you go to college? I went to University of Michigan. I yeah. went to University of Michigan. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, uh, you know, I'm I'm wearing my Ohio State logo here very proudly, uh, but I did go well, to the you, University you, of Michigan. You said it. Some other people just say the School of North. So we're from not from the state, so we can say it. There you go. So, I've got a lot of pride in my education from University of Michigan and a lot of pride in my employer here at Ohio State. Do they have a ski team or ski club at the University of Michigan? They do have a ski club at University of Michigan. I did not participate okay. in that one, though. So, do they have theater? Uh, they do have theater, and I but, certainly they've got one of the best um, one of the best programs oh, in that's music right. and theater. I, yeah, I do know that. And so yeah. I was certainly not in a position oh, okay. to be competitive so, for that. <laughs> so and then so, David Cohn was in the musical. You remember that? <laughs> so you retired from the theater. Exactly. Oh, okay. It was a forced retirement, I think, more than anything. <laughs> so you decided medicine? Your sophomore year, you decided medicine. Did you think, uh, I'm going to do implant devices in people like your father? Or did you have a specific track you were thinking? Yeah. So this kind of brings it all back together again. So I was going to be a family practitioner at the base of a ski mountain. (laughs) And I was going to ski 100 and some days. A lot of broken legs. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I was going to take care of people, you know, in a ski town and be able to, you know, follow my passion of skiing. Did you have the ski town picked out somewhere Um, in Colorado? Well, I actually took (laughs) a year off between undergrad and medical school. So once I decided to go to medical school, I actually got in and deferred. I wanted to make some money and kind of see the world. Um, I was planning on going to Aspen. And so that was going to be my place. It turned out that the guy that I was going to go to Aspen with, his car broke down like the week before we were going. And then another friend was going to Jackson, Wyoming. And I said, hey, you want to take me to Jackson, Wyoming? And I'll do that for a year. And that's where I ended up. And you worked there. I did. I worked there. So you were a ski bum, not a bum, but a ski worker. Well, I would say I, I was, a, I, I worked in Jackson, Wyoming and kind of, this is where it gets interesting. And, um, it was really, I think a very important year for shaping me and my career and my drive. Um, and I've told this story on other forums as well. You know, I actually got fired from three jobs in <laughs> six weeks, uh, in Jackson, Wyoming, uh, 
I got fired from a job working construction for asking too many questions. <laughs> I got fired from a job in a ski shop uh, because the manager asked me to do something that I knew would destroy a pair of skis. And he said, please do it anyway. And it destroyed the ski. And I got fired for that. And then I got uh, fired my first day of working in um, being a busboy and waiter uh, because of, you know, I brought up something that I didn't think was appropriate happening in the restaurant. And the owner slash chef said, you're out. So those three things, I think, were really influential in teaching me about resiliency, kind of getting back up after what could have been disasters um, and keeping on the path for kind of following, you know, my dream of being out there for a year. It did get worse after that because uh, on the first day of ski season, I actually had a major ski injury and got taken down the mountain and only skied half a run in my entire year off of being a ski bum. So So your very first run, you did what? What happened? What was the injury? Fractured my spine. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so ended up going home for the rest of the ski season, coming back for the summer before I started medical school uh, that next August. But again, it was the time where you say it did not end the way that I'd hoped it would have ended. But um, I learned so much about myself and resiliency and drive. And I think that that really shaped some of what I do today. Well, another thing that I from listening to you that I think you learned is some people, some of those lessons could be. I'm going to just always do what my boss says, even if I think he's wrong or it's unethical. But you went the other way and said, I'm going to always, or at least in these cases, and I'm guessing still, you say, I'm going to do what's right. I don't care what the consequences are. Yeah. You know, then the, in the example in the ski shop, when the manager said, please do this. And, you know, I, I just said to him, I'm happy to do this. And, you know, it's going to destroy this pair of whatever it was, $500 skis at that point in time. Um, he and I differed in our opinions and he said, please do this. And I did, um, and suffered the consequences. I thought that was an interesting style of leadership that he demonstrated. Uh, we can argue about that one, but again, I think that it does demonstrate that, you know, with a conversation, if you don't agree with something, um, there's nothing unethical. There was nothing that was going to harm anybody by doing this, but I just thought that we were going to, you know, end up ruining a pair of skis, and that's what happened. And um, I was the one that ended up with the uh, <laughs> with those consequences. Yeah, that's because I learned that lesson too as a newspaper reporter. When when you have an ethical dilemma, tell people, tell your editor who could tell his boss, you know, and then you decide. You know, everyone knows, and you make the correct decision. Yeah. And at least you tried to do that, but right. he didn't listen. And that's true in healthcare as well. You know, I think about the decisions that we make as physicians or anybody that's, you know, a clinician in healthcare is that you make thousands of decisions a day. They're not always totally easy. They're yeah. not always a clear path, but there's got to be a discussion. Life and, death. and the consequences are certainly more than a pair of skis. You've got to have that conversation about, you know, what are the implications of the decision so that you can be informed and then you can ultimately do whatever you believe as a team or as an individual that you think is right, as long as you're weighing all those consequences uh, in the context of the information you have at that time. So you learn the importance of transparency in a ski shop in Jackson, Wyoming. There you go. That's exactly wow. right. There you go. Okay. Where did you go to medical school after uh, your, your year of almost being a skier? Yeah, being a half a run <laughs> skier. So um, I, I hope Georgetown. it was a double black diamond slope. It was. It okay. was right in Jackson Bowl. For those that had been there, it was steep. It was silly. Moguls. I mean, yeah, everything. It, it was everything that um, that you'd expect to lead to a major ski injury. And, uh, and I did that. And it wasn't my first day of skiing out there. We were skiing in Idaho before the mountain opened up. And so um, it was just being at the wrong place at the wrong time. But I ended up going to Georgetown Medical School back in D.C. again, uh, which is great to be close to my family uh, for purposes of, you know, a home-cooked meal and some access to laundry that I wouldn't wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, But it was a great education. Uh, And I think Georgetown was fabulous because there was a lot of independence that was provided as a medical student, kind of let you, again, explore your boundaries and really allowed you to be in a position of trying to figure out what you want to do for the rest of one's career. Now, I know from talking to others that in medical school, you do all these different rotations. They expose you a little bit for a couple of weeks or a month at a time to all these different types of medicine. What were the ones that you were drawn to? Yeah, I was the type of person where everything interests me. Um, I, you know, have a level of curiosity. Okay. This is something that's defined my entire career. I'm always curious. And so whether it was psychiatry or radiology, I found something in there that really made me think a lot more and certain things I said, I can't imagine that as a career choice. Um, I was certainly drawn to, um, things 
that use my hands. Um, again, ski shop, mowing lawns, and surgical specialties I think were really interesting. As I said, I wanted to be a family practitioner uh, because it allowed me, in my mind, to do everything in medicine. So my curiosity could be expanded by, you know, someone walks in with a, you know, a physical injury and a behavioral health challenge, cough and cold, needs a referral to a specialist for a heart problem. The scope of what you can do is massive. But that also is when I began realizing that for myself, I was someone who didn't think that I was smart enough to know everything about everything. And so I began recognizing that that's too big for me. I wanted to be more contained. I wanted to be a little bit deeper in knowledge than expansive in what I could know. Oh, that's interesting. You decided to focus on one thing because you didn't think you could learn everything, which, there, and there seems to be a lot to learn if you want to learn everything about medicine. That's exactly, it's a, it's a pretty big book, that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and they, they keep adding lots of chapters. Yeah, that's true. And again, um, there are incredible family practitioners out there that know an unbelievable amount, and that is just not the way yeah. that, that, I, that I feel most comfortable. And so I decided to pursue a career in OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology. A lot of it was because of mentors that I had met, you know, people who were modeling great behavior. Um, um, taking care of women at a very unique time in their lives, whether it's pregnancy, whether it's cancer-related, uh, whether it is you know menopausal health, and I just found people in that specialty that I really identified with, and that was the career choice where I said I can still do some primary care, I can still do surgery. That scope and breadth is still there, but it certainly is a lot deeper in knowledge than it would be just family in in family practice. Yeah, you brought up the word mentors, and that seems to me that's so important in this profession, and that I've heard that from others, that early on in medical school, they either had a, a in a rotation someone who they didn't like, so they shied away from that specialty, or they had someone they really liked, and they went into that specialty. That So how important are mentors, and what did you learn from your OBGYN GYN mentors at Georgetown that you liked and made you want to do what they did. Yeah. Um, and so you're picking up on a very important point is that our careers are shaped, whether it's in medicine or whatever we do, by people you meet along the way. We talked about in a ski shop, you might find that there's people that, you know, behaviors you want to model or others that you don't want to model. So you begin shaping your own life and career at that point in time. And I think it's true in healthcare and medicine as well. So I found people that are, you know, committed to their profession that are doing this for the right reason, their interpersonal relationships were really something that I identified with. They all got along reasonably well. Um, the life of an obstetrics and gynecology resident is very hard. You know, you're yeah. spending a lot of time in the hospital, but they did it in a way that just seemed to be, they found joy in what they did. And I can't think of anything that was um, more truthful than that when I actually did the residency myself. Um, found joy in what I did, loved the people that I worked with, despite the fact that I was working 100 hours per week um, in the hospital at that point in time, you know, fully committing myself to a career uh, in OBGYN. So it was those types of mentors. And then they had fun outside of work as well. I think that was really important to me. Not that much after those those amount of hours <laughs> per week. <laughs> but I think the other thing is that it wasn't just the people. It's also the patients. And yeah. um, this was when, you know, again, I began shaping my ideas about how patient-centered care is just critically important, is that the patients were always at the center of what obstetrics and gynecology providers did. Uh, it's just as critically important. And so you might say that's always the case. But I think that, again, it's this unique um opportunity to be in the lives of a patient at a very specific time that ensures that they are always at the center of the decisions that you make. Well, different hospitals, whether they be cancer hospitals or other hospitals, have different cultures. And that aspect of patient care and having that as such an important part of your culture I've, is strong here. And, may not, and others, it's not as strong. So you grew up medically in your medical training in a culture that put patients first and that stayed with you? I don't think I realized it at the time, but reflecting back upon it, I think that's one of those things that drew me to the specialty. Um, and as you mentioned, the James has a very strong culture that's based on you know a nursing model that's called relationship-based care that does put the, the patient at the very center of what we do. And then the layers that kind of fall from there are you know taking care of the patient, taking care of each other in our team model, taking care of ourselves, making sure that professionally and personally we are um, 
satisfied and being the best people we can be and then taking care of our community. And so as you kind of peel back those layers, the patient's always at the center of what we do. And I think that really does help to define the culture of the James and many other um, high-performing hospitals. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to learn about what brought Dave here to the James. In today's world, misinformation abounds, but at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Dave Cohn, the interim chief executive officer of the James, and we're going through your career, and we're we're up to medical school, and that you've decided that OBGYN is the direction you want to go. So, what's next after Georgetown Medical School? Yeah. So after Georgetown um, Medical School, it was residency at University of Washington in Seattle. Um, loved the Pacific Northwest, and they had a high-risk obstetrical group that I was really interested in. So at that point in time, I wanted to be an obstetrician. I wanted to think about how to eliminate premature labor, thinking about how infection contributes to labor. And then I think one of those crucible moments occurred where my career changed very abruptly. And that was when my father was uh, diagnosed with a recurrence of his blood cancer called multiple myeloma, and then ended up dying my intern year, the first year of my residency. And I began realizing through that process that I wanted to be in a specialty within OBGYN for the same reason that I wanted to be an OBGYN rather than family medicine. I wanted to kind of focus on something, think about the depth of that, and began really identifying with oncology patients through my father's experience. And that's, you know, truly what I attribute my career to at this point in time as being a gynecologic oncologist and began pursuing a career in that direction through my residency that led to the fellowship in gynecologic oncology. Now, I'm sorry about your dad, and were you're across the country, are you able to come home and be there a little bit, or? It was hard, so again, in, in residency, you're working those you know very long yeah. hours, and um, my program was able to accommodate to a certain extent. My father was getting a bone marrow transplant at the University of Arkansas in Little Rock, uh, where they had a area a center of excellence in myeloma treatment, and so he chose to go from D.C. to Little Rock for his treatment, and then died as complications related to his heart uh, during the preparation for the transplant. So I was able to be there for a couple weeks during that time, you know, when he was quite ill in the ICU and then ultimately when he died and then spent some time with my family as well. But it was, um, you know, hard to be away. Yeah. Um, I, I think in the end, um, our family was able to be together for the most important periods of, of time together. You know, I was just talking to another doctor who had a, a similar thing and that he said that that he already, this was later in his career, but it all, he was already put the patients first, but even more so this made him realize how important that was and changes it has changed his perspective even more as that happened to you that going through it and seeing the interaction with your father and his nurses and doctors and and how that worked has influenced you and how you do that yeah i think that for you know anything that we experience personally or with our families or friends a close individual where they're going through some type of journey it has to shape what you do um hopefully for the better um and I would say that my father's experience in the healthcare system kind of certainly allowed us to recognize some of the challenges in care delivery. I think that that helped to shape the way that I practice medicine or the way I think about executing on a plan as the chief medical officer or as the chief executive officer, but also kind of demonstrates how important it is from our nursing side, our clinical side, our physicians, just to be there for patients when you need them. Uh, I think that that was the yeah. thing that surely shaped my career. Yeah. Um, we got off track a little, but that was important. But so you decided that the oncology side of OBGYN is where you wanted to go. How do you then do that? What does that mean? You say, okay, I want to 
specialize in the oncology side of that, what do you then do? You can't just, you know, do it. <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, like anything in training, um, when you begin recognizing this is a career path that you're interested in, it is what can you do to organize your life and time to make sure that you're able to get you know, into a program to train you as an oncologist. And so that was the beginning of my interest in research. Um, I wanted to create a cancer-free world. And, you know, here we are at the James where that's something that's so critically important. So beginning to create the knowledge um, that would contribute to that path towards a cancer-free world, being involved in research, um, making connections with mentors across the country, and then ultimately figuring out where I would um, identify with most strongly for a fellowship training program as well. And it's funny is that when I look at my career here, um, one of the most important mentors that I had was a surgeon at University of Minnesota, a gynecologic oncologist whose name is Jeff Fowler, who ultimately was here at Ohio yeah. State. And that's the reason why I came here, because when I was a resident, I sought out Jeff's counsel because he was doing innovative surgical research at University of Minnesota when he was there, spent a month with him um, when I was a resident. Uh, and then ultimately he came here to run the division and that's how, after my fellowship, I ended up coming here because at every meeting, every chance that I would see Dr. Fowler, I kind of pull on his pants leg and say, Hey, you got to hire me. Hey, you got to hire me. <laughs> and I think I wore him down enough that finally he said, fine, you know, come to Ohio state and just stop bothering me. And in 2001, that's how I ended up here. Well, I don't think he said stop bothering me. <laughs> I think he and did. Then he, uh, but he continued as a mentor. He did. And probably one of the most important mentors in my career. But maybe ask fewer questions. <laughs> Remember, I got fired from my construction yeah, job for, for asking too many, too many questions. questions. Yeah, Same you, exact you thing. You learn the right amount of questions. It's a pattern I've got. So what year did you come here? 2001. So first job out of my fellowship training. And, and what, only job. What job was that in 2001? So in academic medicine, you're hired in as an assistant professor. Um, there's a you know relatively strict hierarchy in medical of assistant, associate, and full professor. And so I was hired to the Division of Gynecologic Oncology to be a faculty member as an assistant professor. Um, chose to be on the tenure track, which is the research track. Um, started up a laboratory, did uh, you know some science, got funded from a variety of groups to do that science as well, and just continued on the path uh, to where we are today. Now, this could be a whole podcast on the, your science and your research, but if you could sum up in a minute or two the, the tract of your research, what was the overall sort of area that you researched yeah, so, and still research? And still do. And so at the beginning, it was thinking about therapeutics or treatments uh, for the treatment and prevention of ovarian cancer. Um, I was interested in the drivers of cancer growth through blood vessel um, proliferation, and so we developed actually a preventative vaccine theoretically against the uh, development of ovarian cancer. That was kind of the first iteration. And what I realized is that, you know, I am not able to be a scientist at the level to compete with some of the best in the country and realized that the way that I could leverage my scientific um, interests and knowledge is with collaborations. Yes. So very quickly pivoted from saying, I'm not made to have a lab of my own. I'm not a principal investigator competing for grants but I would love to help to inform the translational aspects of science. Where is it that someone in the laboratory can actually get the information from the clinical side that I know and find that translation, the bench to bedside applications of that knowledge. But that collaboration is key because if you just do something in, in the lab on its own and you don't work with a physician seeing patients, the connection will never happen. That definitely is how to make the science as rich as possible, is to make sure that there's that clinical application. We talk about the bench to bedside to bench yeah. again. Things that are developed in the laboratory have to have clinical applications, and that knowledge that you gain from the clinical applications feed back up into the bench to refine that science further. Okay, so you're here, associate professor, associate professor trying to get tenure and doing some research, figuring out what you can and can't do and figuring out who to collaborate with. So who did you collaborate and who became your mentors here, other perhaps Jeff Fowler and, and others? Yeah, so when, when I started here, um, there wasn't a whole lot of basic science research in the gynecologic area that was done. And so one of the things that I was charged with is let's think about how to develop a you know, scientific program. So I worked with a PhD, his name is Pravin Kamaya in our department, and that was the vaccine scientist. He still is here, still doing very important vaccine preventative research as well in a variety of cancers. 
Um, and then ultimately, I think that the career-defining moment was actually when Paul Goodfellow, uh, a PhD scientist in endometrial cancer biology, um, ended up coming here to Ohio State. Interestingly, in Washington University, where I did my fellowship in St. Louis, I worked in Paul's lab in 1998. And so Paul ultimately came to Ohio State and then really escalated our program, uh, set up his laboratory, um, was very heavily funded, was very instrumental in training our next generation of fellows as well, our trainees, uh, in their scientific uh, pursuits as well. So I think that that was one of those really important mentors in my life from a science standpoint that led me to where I am. Did you recruit him to come here? I would say that it was a mutual decision. He had an interest in exploring other options, and we certainly had a need for somebody to round out our science program. He fit really well as well because one of the really uh, important hallmarks of uh, OSU's cancer program in the CCC and research, the Comprehensive Cancer Center in the research program, was Dr. Albert de la Chapelle. Uh, Dr. Right. de la Chapelle, who passed last year, um, was instrumental in looking at some of the hereditary components in colorectal cancer syndrome called Lynch syndrome. And so in uterine cancer, endometrial cancer in our space, um, Paul Goodfellow was one of those individuals that really thought about the biology of Lynch syndrome. And so it was a perfect match for him to come here and round out the program. That, if I know my history right, and in talking to Clara Bloomfield and Mike Caligiri, that the, that period, the first five, six, seven, eight years of the 2000 was the tremendous growth spurt of the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center, that they, first Clara and then Mike, were determined to just build this place. And, it, it, and am I correct? And is that what was going on there that brought in people like first you and then Paul Goodfellow and, and the work you guys had the opportunity to do. I certainly think that that was an incredible growth time in the cancer program. And it really set up, it was perfectly set up by the expansion of the knowledge of the human genome. So yeah. we knew about the genetics of cancer, the biology of cancer, the science was getting better. And so I think that across the country, the knowledge about cancer biology had really escalated. And that led to this major recruitment and a focus, you know, honestly, with Mike and Clara on blood cancers. And that's been one of the hallmarks of the James and our Comprehensive Cancer Center is our commitment to leukemia research, which continues today. And I think that brought in a lot of scientists. And then Albert de la Chapelle and his genetic side uh, was really key in kind of some of the solid tumor biology and research that was done as well. Okay. So... Paul Goodfellow came here and joined you in some research. And then what was next for you? Well, you know, then I think that um, our division of gynecologic oncology just grew. We had PhD scientists. We had a number of faculty. We tripled the size of our faculty, um, became more integrated across the cancer program with our, you know, clinical care delivery model with our advanced practice providers and nursing staff. Um, and then I found myself really drawn to building things, uh, building a larger division, building a fellowship program within our division. And I think ultimately that led to the uh, opportunity that I found myself in as being recruited to be the chief medical officer of the hospital. But first you were the division chief of gynecologic cancer. Uh, division chief of the gynecologic oncology group here, group. the clinical team. Well, that's this is what I'm always curious about. What drives doctors to I mean, you were already busy. You had clinic, you had surgery, you had research, you had collaboration. What makes you and others here and elsewhere say, I want to take it to the next level. I want to lead a division. I want to build something more. What, where does yeah. that come from? Um, I would say that from my perspective, I've always been curious. Like I said, I've always been a builder of things too. And so I think that when I naturally fell into the job of wanting to lead the division, it was here we are today with a relatively small division and, you know, not a lot of research. We had incredible mentors and my predecessors of Larry Copeland and Jeff Fowler in our division. We had recruited more people there and we had a critical mass where all of a sudden we found ourselves where we were on a precipice of being one of the best programs in the country. Pieces and parts were there. It needed some organization. It needed the opportunity and the resources to grow. And I think that that was really inspiring for me is to say, I know where we are today. I know where we can be. Um, I think I have a sense for what that path looks like. How do you put the pieces along the path so that we can then walk on it? And that's been a model, I think, that for many 
um, leaders in healthcare that you've utilized. And I did that at the division. Um, and, you know, that was what inspired me to continue the work as CMO and then interim CEO as well. So in all these leadership positions, some of the job descriptions are recruiting people and creating the opportunities for them, helping them put together the plans. How do you do that? What's your leadership style? <laughs> yeah. If I had to put a name on leadership style, it's that of servant leadership, um, which to me means being in a position where you sometimes have to recognize that your personal pursuits are less important than that of the group. So modeling behaviors we talked about already, um, making sure that we're in a position that if I can invest in others and invest in a program, then everybody will be better for it. Uh, so I get a lot of satisfaction of seeing our faculty as a whole that are being recognized for the work they do nationally, internationally, that we're being recognized for delivering high quality, whether it's related to being one of the highest accruers to clinical trials across the country or having some of the best trained fellows or training programs in our fellowship as well. So all those things to me provide personal satisfaction, more so than my own personal, you know, my personal achievements. So who were the role models for that here? Who did you see doing that that you said, I like the way he or she is doing this. When I get in their position, I'm going to be the same way. Yeah, there's so many. Um, this place is really the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center, I think, is really remarkable in their servant leadership. Um, you mentioned Mike Caligiuri and Clara Bloomfield two people that were very important in my life, um, you know, as I watched their leadership style. Um, I talked about Jeff Fowler and Larry Copeland in my division. You know, Larry talks about fairness and accountability as kind of being his core model. And I think those things have resonated with me as well, as you want to make sure that people are being held to the standards that they're expected, but also to be done in a way which is fair as well. And so I think Jeff is the classic servant leader, um, modeled the right behaviors at the right times, uh, looked at the opportunities for growth as well, recognized what needed to happen, recruited the right people. Uh, and so using those as models, I think, are really critically important for success. You know, I've noticed over the years in the many bosses I've had, a lot of people aren't like that. And they they can't let go and 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 work to make the people beneath them give them what they need and the recognition and, and let them succeed. They, their own ego prevents that. So those are good lessons that you learned. <laughs> well, I think in academic medicine in particular, um, again, kind of getting back to patients at the center, you know, we're all trying to pursue the same thing of creating a cancer-free world. And if your own personal ego and agenda is what you lead with, it's really hard to get yeah. to that place. So I think that in healthcare, it might be a little bit easier to actually have individuals that are focused on the right style of leadership. Um, and those that aren't doing that, you know, it's going to be harder to kind of reach that pursuit right. of a, of a leadership position. Well, good. That leads me into my next question of leadership. You follow in some pretty impressive people's footsteps. I, let me see if I get the order right. Um, Dave Schuler was the first CEO of the James followed by Mike Caligiri and Bill Farr and now you and I've had a chance to talk to all three and the podcast I did with Bill Farr when he retired it was called the patient always comes first and that's he says that's the lessons he learned from Dr. James before there even was a James and that seems to be the thread that runs through all of you and the whole and the whole culture at the hospital. So talk about that and how you learned that and how you make that continue to be such a strong culture. Yeah. Again, thank you for recognizing the leadership of the James. I think it was just when you, when you see who has been the CEO, and again, there's cancer center directors as well. Clara Bloomfield being one of them, David Yon before her are individuals that helped to lead the research side too, but they all kind of are aligned in the same way, as you mentioned, you know, patient-centered, pursuing a cancer-free world. Um, how do you learn that? I think that you step foot in the James and you recognize that there's a palpable culture which exists. It didn't always exist. It was created. Uh, but it takes constant attention. And it's not the CEO that makes that happen, but it's the entire team. 
It is our environmental services workers. It's our nutrition services workers. It's our nursing staff, our advanced practice uh, providers. It's our physicians. It's everybody on the team that has to be marching in that same direction. Um, and if that doesn't happen, we begin, you know, the seams begin ripping. And um, I don't think anybody's interested in that happening. So we talked about relationship-based care being at the core of it. And our nursing colleagues, I think, have been critically important in making sure that that's what drives us every day and what we do. Um, but if it doesn't, if it's not supported at the highest levels, whether it's the highest in nursing or in you know the medical staff or at the CEO, the, the executive level, then it couldn't persist throughout the organization. So it is not necessarily a top-down directive that you must do this, but it's a bottom-up that everybody is marching in the same direction. But I think that it's consistent throughout the organization and that makes it successful. You know, I might have to disagree with you just a little bit in that when you say it's not top down, you're, there's a lot of truth to that. But the person at the top sets a tone. And if you set the right tone, it's easier for people to follow. Yeah. The, the passion that, you know, Dave Schuler, Mike Caligiuri and Bill Farr demonstrated before me has been very apparent. Um, and yeah, I can hope that I can emulate that behavior um, as they had done as well to make it successful. Well, I've talked to a few of your patients, as you know, and, and they <laughs> say you do, You're, that they, they seem to love you and talk about how easy it is to not just talk to you, that you're available 24 hours a day, that you reach out to them to see how they're doing, that you connect with them at Pelotonia, that you know their family. So I think it's safe to say you're following on the legacy of the the three giants who preceded you. <laughs> well, that that's nice to hear. And, you know, medicine is a really special profession. Um, I don't, you know, again, you can call it a profession. It's an honor to be able to take care of people and their families. Um, and so it is not necessarily work to do this. Um, just think about how unique oh, an opportunity you have. It, it, I, I don't want to. I don't want to minimize <laughs> no, that it is work, but it feels different than yeah. working in a ski shop. Well, it's work um, you. If it's work you love, yeah. Then, well, let's talk about that. You are the the interim CEO. Um, what? And you must have some goals, some plans, some things you're working on. So go through a few of the things that you're have and are trying to implement, and some of the new collaborations and new. Uh, programs that you're you're working with to develop with your great team. Yeah. So anytime there's a leadership opportunity, um, you can always reflect upon where you are today and kind of where you can be. And I would say that you know the aspiration of the cancer program is to be a top ten cancer program in the United States by whatever measures, whether it's U.S. News and World Report rankings of the hospital, whether it's research funding. There's a lot of different ways you can measure top ten. But we want to make sure that we're all aligned in that pursuit of being a top 10 cancer program in an academic medical center in the land-grant university that is Ohio State. And so we're really at a unique place and a unique opportunity to try to execute on that plan. And then it's a question of how do you do it? Um, we're committed to excellence in patient care, not just here in Columbus, but we want to make sure that our entire catchment area, which is defined by our cancer center's grant, is the state of Ohio. And so thinking about where we can make sure that we're delivering the highest quality cancer care across the entire state of Ohio, there's a lot of pockets where access to um, top end tertiary and quaternary care providers like we have at the James is not existent. And so we've expanded our James Cancer Network to make sure that you know the tendrils of the James reach out to the communities where that access is not present so patients can get treated in their hometowns. Uh, without having to come to Columbus, but making sure that quality is still high. We want to make sure that we are continuing to foster these incredible cancers that we take care of today, whether they are the rare cancers like sarcomas or head and neck cancers that we've got a long history of caring for, whether it's the leukemias and the lymphomas, the blood cancers that we've had a long tradition, like we've said already, in making sure that we are taking care of, um, of those patients, but also more common cancers, lung, breast, colon, prostate, uh, cancers that 
provide the largest burden of cancer and cancer deaths in the United States, that we're able to, you know, have high quality care that's predicated upon our research, whether that's clinical trials or our translational science, to continue to move the needle on improving the cancer outcomes we've seen across the country, but really escalating the improvements in cancer care that we've seen already. And so those are really deliberate investments that we're making in certain areas. Um, but I think it's all predicated upon our research program. So we are a very unique entity here at the James as part of the Comprehensive Cancer Center at the university to be investing in research programs. Um, and I want to highlight a couple of those that are really okay. important. Good. So we have a cancer engineering program that's really just kind of leveraging the strengths of the engineering department at the university with some of the opportunities with artificial intelligence uh, for the cancer program, making sure that we have the structural engineering program um, that can recreate jaw bones, for example, to help our surgeons in the operating room. We've got a big focus on prevention. Uh, I think that's what you're going to hear that, you know, the best cancer to have is one that you never get. And so whatever we can do for prevention, we talked about genetics already, but we're focusing on uh, on prevention through tobacco and policies related to tobacco and tobacco research, and then also cancer prevention in general and improving the survivorship, the care for people after their treatment is done as they continue on their journey throughout the rest of their lives cancer-free, I think is really important. Okay. Is there anything else, any specific thing that you want to do that's yeah. way out there that may take a few years, but is really top of your wish list. You know, there's not a single thing, um, but it is the single thing of pursuing the cancer-free world through being a top 10 cancer program. And there's so many pieces that kind of go into that, that would lead to that outcome uh, per se. And I think most importantly, it gets back to the center, to the patient. And uh, as long as we're continuing to deliver high quality care that's done safely and effectively, uh, that puts the patient first, that path is relatively simple to continue to walk on uh, to get to our top 10 ambition. Okay. Well, I think I'm glad that you weren't a little better at singing and dancing <laughs> and didn't like law and that you wound up here. And so thank you for sharing your very interesting life and career and good luck in implementing some of these goals and programs and ambitions you just mentioned. Thanks, Steve. It really is an honor to be able to lead this program. I've got incredible pride in it. It's the only place that I've been my entire career. I think that says a lot for my commitment to Ohio State and to the James and certainly to our patients as well. Maybe next time we'll come back and do a ukulele, mandolin, guitar serenade and dance for you as well. Uh, I don't think you get very many hits on that one, though. <laughs> well, you're on record saying it, so <laughs> we're going to hold you to it. It'll be a special episode. Well, if you could find some of the other um, members of the James or the Comprehensive Cancer Center who are musicians, and we can put together a one-time band, that will be a special episode of the podcast. All right. That might be the one <laughs> thing that you said. If you got your ambition, you want to do one thing, it's kind of out there, that's it. That's All right. That's your non-work-related, <laughs> non-cancer research-related wish list. Perfect. Bucket list. All right. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.